Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, September 12, 2017, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Well, our special guest this evening is Frank Jacob, who is an award-winning director, international speaker, visual artist, musician, and composer. His most recent work explores the frontiers of consciousness-raising subject matter and includes the feature documentary Solar Revolution, The Klaus Dona Chronicles, and Packing for Mars, which won People's Choice at the International UFO Congress 2016. Frank was producer and supervising editor at Red Bull Media House and a prime contributor on season two and three of the hit Red Bull TV show, Ultimate Rush. Known for his enigmatic approaches, Frank has visually realized many different subjects that would not ordinarily find their way into the audiovisual medium. This has included an audiovisual exploration of blindness called Beating Darkness, an afterlife video epitaph, depicting the work of deceased architect Herbig Ilmeyer, and an annual report in the form of an audiovisual narrative entitled Information is Art, which he performed live in 2007 at Carnegie Hall for the influential American Austrian Foundation. He was invited to conceive and perform a unique live cinema spectacle in 2010 in collaboration with a 65-piece orchestra, symphony orchestra in Salzburg, the birth town of Mozart. You can check out his website at packingformarsmovie.com. And uh, Frank's going to have some special stuff to tell us this evening. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Jada and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for anyone who has a question or comment for our guest. Check out our online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. For those who need healing of any kind, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference for you. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, you can find out when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And remember, if you want that chart to be interpreted, you're going to have to order it about two or three months ahead of time because we do have a waiting list. So uh, first this evening, I will introduce Anastasia and her ever-popular Starseed News. Hey, Anastasia. Well, good evening, Ariel. Good evening, Starseed listeners. Great to be with you, man. Do we have the news tonight? I tell you, 
I could have gone on probably for an hour and a half. Not going to, though, don't worry. But there is so much news happening. In fact, some people are referring to this as the apocalyptic September. And indeed, it's not over yet. This is only the 12th. So let's get on with it. So much news to cover. Some of it isn't as grim as what I'm going to report. But some of the articles are of interest to Starseed that I'm including. But as of right now... I want to report that we did have an X-class solar flare on September 6th. I'm sure you all know about that, very easily know about that. It was from Active Sunspot spot AR2673 that let go of an X9.3-class solar flare. That's a solar flare with the energy of a billion hydrogen bombs. It was the strongest solar flare in far more than a decade. Then following that, uh, the debris from that X9-class solar flare hit the Earth's magnetic field a few days ago. There were northern lights in the USA as far south as Arkansas. Then there was a severe G4-class geomagnetic storm September 8th. Sparked aurora so bright that in parts of Scandinavia, traffic stopped as drivers pulled over to look at the display. That wasn't all. Two days ago, September 10th, Sunspot AR2673 produced a major X-class solar flare. Moderately strong solar radiation storm was underway for a couple of days. In fact, it might still be underway. Protons accelerating by the blast are swarming around our planet, and shortwave radio blackouts over the Americas and around the poles have been observed in the aftermath of the explosion. I looked at the uh, blackout map for this, uh, these solar flares, and interestingly enough, they're centered right in the Pacific Ocean uh, off the coast of Mexico where they had that large earthquake. I wonder about the connection with that. Anyway, uh, we've had a ground-level radiation event on Sunday. That X-class solar flare uh, accelerated that swarm of protons, and it produced a strong solar radiation storm and a ground-level event, a GLE. What's that? High-energy particles normally held at bay by our atmosphere and magnetic field were penetrated all the way to the ground uh, two days ago. Now, a leading analyst of GLE said that radiation dose rates on board commercial flights flying at high latitudes probably briefly doubled during that episode. Solar radiation penetrated all the way to the ground here on Earth. Amazing. So the sun has been very active, and you know this follows all follows within the short time period of the total solar eclipse. So, signs of importance indeed. Well, when it comes to the sun, uh, we know what's going on there, but do you know what's happening on the moon? <laughs> you probably do. But well, we are think now we both, do, but, but we're, yeah. Frank's going to tell us different, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this is a little bit more uh, uh, pedantic information about the moon, but scientists are discovering that there is a deep reservoir of water that exists beneath the moon's surface that could help support a human colony. New study shows the surface of the moon has more water than we thought, suggesting the interior of our natural satellite could hold a deep reservoir of water. This new finding bolsters the idea that the lunar mantle is surprisingly water-rich, which could make colonizing it for future space exploration much easier. Even, of course, have to have water to do it. Well, a group of researchers used data from the moon mapping mission to search for clues for water in the spectrum of light reflected from the moon's surface. And by looking at which wavelengths of light are absorbed or reflected by the surface, Scientists were able to gather a clue as to where the water and other minerals are that they are discovering present on the moon. 
water on the moon. That's an amazing discovery. Mm, well, yeah. NASA's Saturn orbiting Cassini spacecraft is based its fiery finish. After a 20-year voyage, NASA's Cassini spacecraft is poised to dive into Saturn this week to become forever one with the planet. Now, Cassini is the only spacecraft ever to orbit Saturn, at least from Earth anyway. <laughs> Cassini spent the past, past five months exploring the uncharted territory between the gaseous planet and its dazzling rings. It darted 22 times between that gap and sent back photographs to us so we could see the splendor that is Saturn. Now, during its final plunge early Friday morning, this coming Friday morning, Cassini will keep sampling Saturn's atmosphere and beaming back data until the spacecraft loses control and its antenna no longer points towards Earth, descending at a scorching 76,000 miles per hour Cassini will melt and then vaporize. It'll all be over in a short minute. Wow. So we will not be discussing Cassini in our future po- uh, broadcasts because Cassini has finished its mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Florida is a state built on air conditioning, and they are really struggling without power. Millions of Florida residents now want to know just one thing. When are we going to get our power back on? Hurricane Irma triggered, as you know, one of the bigger blackouts in U.S. history, plunging as many as 13 million people into the dark, and the storm dragged down power lines and blew out transformers. Now, those who evacuated ahead of the hurricane are facing the prospect of days, maybe weeks, with nothing to call upon to ease the withering heat and humidity. Just think about being in Florida without air conditioning. Now, more than 50,000 utility workers, some from as far away as Canada and California, are responding to the crisis. And we have some beautiful starseed that live in Florida as well as in the Houston area. We really need to do what we can to help them. It's pretty tough times for those beautiful people. Well, uh, also about Florida, here's a lesson. I'm I'm including this in tonight's uh, broadcast just because I think it's something to think about. Uh, Floridians are saying that online retailers let them down ahead of Irma. For those of you that shop online, Well, more than 50 Floridians told news organizations that they did not receive their flashlights, battery-operated radios, their box milk, their water bottles, first aid kits, after they placed orders with online retailers. Several said that companies let them down at the worst possible moment and even before the weather deteriorated. They said on Saturday that they received cancellation notifications only after the evacuations had begun and the market shelves had emptied out. These are people who placed their orders as early as Monday of that week. Now, Amazon said that their deliveries were experiencing delays because of the weather, and Nestle's water distributor called Ready Refresh gave an apology on Friday on Twitter for the service disruptions and delivery delays. But good lesson here. You know, we take things for granted that they'll just be delivered, but it's not a bad idea. Uh, dear ones, to have your closet stocked with essentials in case these things happen. We can't necessarily depend on others. Well, I want to share with you some statistics about an apocalyptic September so far. Did you know that California is on fire? Oregon is on fire. Washington is on fire. British Columbia is on fire. Alberta is on fire. Montana is on fire. 
Nova Scotia is on fire. Greece is on fire. Brazil is on fire. Portugal is on fire. Algeria is on fire. Tunisia is on fire. Greenland is on fire. And the Saka Republic of Russia is on fire. But that's not all. Siberia is on fire. Texas has been underwater. India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Bangladesh have experienced record monsoons and massive death death tolls in the wake of that. Sierra Leone and Niger Niger have experienced massive floods, huge mudslides, and death by the thousands from that weather-related, those weather-related incidents. Italy, France, Spain, Switzerland, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia are crushed in the death grip of a triple-digit heat wave. They're calling it Lucifer, heat wave Lucifer. Oh, my gosh. Southern Southern California continues to swelter under triple-digit heat that has shown no sign of letting up. In a usually chilly August, the city of San Francisco shattered all-time record at 106 degrees, and it reached 115 degrees south of the city. And Northern California, generally pretty cool, continued to bake in the triple digits. That's not all. Yellowstone volcano hit with an earthquake swarm of over 2,300 tremors since June, recording a 4.4 quake June 15th and a 3.3 shaker August 21st. There was a 5.3 earthquake that rumbled through Idaho. Japan had an earthquake of 6.1. Mexico earthquake had an 8.2 with a tsunami. (laughs) Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Jose, and Keisha are barreling around the Atlantic with eight more potentials forming in the ocean. And last but not least, we had that almost 10 coronal mass ejection solar flare. It's the highest recorded solar flare ever. Wow. It is a wild time. Well, in uh, West Africa, uh, this is very unfortunate, to say the least. They're having an outbreak of Ebola hemorrhagic fever in West Africa, and it's spread to New Guinea's capital and beyond its borders. What they're calling, I don't know if it's true or not, you know, sometimes they just sensationalize, but they're calling it an unprecedented epidemic, according to a leading agency that talked about this yesterday. Now, a total of 122 patients are suspected of contracting Ebola, 78 have died. Doctors Without Borders have said this. Most victims have been in Guinea, but the World Health Organization reported Sunday that two deaths in Sierra Leone and one in Liberia are suspected to have been caused by the Ebola virus. So here it comes again. Let's go back to Idaho. Southeast Idaho earthquake swarm continues as the number of tremblers passes 200 since the 2nd of September, 10 days ago. The earthquake swarm in southwest Idaho looked like it might be ending or at least slowing down Thursday and Friday, but then Saturday arrived, and by the day's end, 19 quakes had struck. There have been 34 more tremblers so far since Sunday, bringing the earthquake total since the swarm began on September 2nd to 204 quakes. All of the quakes have occurred in Caribou County, area east, southeast, and northeast of Soda Springs. 
Guatemala has suffered its second earthquake in less than 72 hours. The western Guatemalan province of Huchutenango was hit by a 7.7 magnitude quake last Thursday, following a 5.4 quake, quake that happened just a few days earlier. And they say that Thursday night's 8.1 magnitude quake in Mexico impacted on the lives of over 6,000 people in neighboring Guatemala. Guatemala was already affected by the 8.1 quake that hit Mexico. Hundreds of homes have been damaged. It's not just Mexico. Guatemala's had some big quakes. Well, moving along from the weather, let's talk about society. Let's talk about Equifax. Have you heard about it? You probably have. But I'm bringing it to you in case you haven't. The Equifax data breach scandal really is infuriating. Equifax has been scrambling now to explain itself since disclosing last week that it exposed vital data about 143 million Americans, effectively most of the U.S. population, adult population. Now, it's come under fire from members of Congress. I should hope so state attorneys general and people who are getting conflicting answers about whether their information was stolen. Now, this company keeps track of the detailed financial affairs of all Americans. That means it and its competitors, TransUnion and Experian, are a detailed storehouse of some of the most personal and sensitive information of Americans' financial lives. And all of it, of course, can be used for identity theft. Now, Equifax is trying to clarify its language about people's right to sue them and said that it is making other changes to address customer complaints. In other words, uh, they say, read the fine print. Uh, You can't sue us, apparently. But some lawyers have already announced suits that they hope will be class action cases. But again, the fine print to credit agreements will likely mean that Equifax will not have to account to consumers for its misdeeds. Equifax has been the focus of anger and distrust, not only for the breach, but over how it was handled. Because guess what? They discovered this hack back in July, on the 29th. But they didn't publicly announce it until more than a month after. Well, people are trying to find out if they've been affected, have gotten some contradictory information. So if you want to find out, go to EquifaxSecurity2017.com. Equifax promises it'll send a notice to everyone who had personally identifiable information stolen. But, you know, considering the size and scope of this breach, it's probably better just to assume that you were a part of it. So they say that ultimately we are responsible for protecting ourselves. Well, you know, actually, really needs to become, there needs to come an enormous overhaul over the freewheeling use of Social Security numbers as an identifier. In this, the government has opened every American to uh, this very problem that it claims to fight, problem, reaction, solution. Um, This is the problem right here, that we give it out like candy to everybody. But the advice to uh, consumers is to consider freezing their credit reports. They say this will stop thieves from opening new credit cards or loans in your name, but it prevents you from opening new, new accounts as well. So if you want to apply for a loan, you'll have to lift the freeze a few days beforehand. So they've stepped in to investigate, and guess why? Uh, company in- executives uh, uh, sold shares worth a combined $1.8 million just a few days after they discovered the breach, but well in advance of announcing it. So there <laughs> you have it. 
Honesty, honesty everywhere. We are drowning in honesty, people. Okay, uh, tongue-in-cheek, of course. Well, here's a very interesting story. All of you female warriors out there, all you spiritual gals, you female warriors, spiritual warriors, uh, we come from good stock. Scientists are saying now that DNA tests have shown that Viking warrior was female. In Berlin, they found a skeleton that was in a Viking warrior's grave, a very lavish grave. Um, this, this news article is out of uh, Berlin, but they found this grave in Sweden. And the grave holds uh, um, the remains of a woman in her 30s. Now, Swedish researchers have used new methods to analyze genetic material from the 1,000-year-old bones at this Viking-era site known as Birka near Stockholm. And on Monday, the test guaranteed these bones are definitely those of a woman. Now, this grave is particularly well-furnished. It has swords and shields and various other weapons and horses. And writing in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, the researchers say it's the first confirmed remains of a high-ranking female Viking warrior S. Warrior S. Pretty cool. <clears throat> that is, that's been in the stories for a long time, but now they have physical evidence <clears throat> that there was a female ascendant <clears throat> in the Viking war culture. And a bit more of archaeology. This is fascinating. Uh, the Swiss are sending a second-century coffin depicting Hercules on over to the country of Turkey. Oh, they had an argument over who got to keep this coffin. Well, a Turkish consular official in Geneva says that a rare ancient sarcophagus depicting the 12 labors of Hercules is going to be shipped home to Turkey. Now, this sarcophagus sat for years in Geneva's customs office warehouse before being seized by Swiss customs officials in 2010. So ending a legal battle, the Geneva Prosecutor's Office in 2015 approved that the coffin should go home. Now this hulking relic, it's enormous and it's beautiful. The pictures online are gorgeous. Uh, it's immense, beautiful carvings on it. Uh, this relic is going to be driven from Geneva to Zurich for a flight Wednesday to Turkey to be displayed in their museum. The second century marble coffin shows scenes of Hercules strangling the Nemean lion and killing the hydra. Experts think it's one of only 12 in the whole world. Amazing story. How often do you ever think about the stories about Hercules in the ancient, ancient days? And here it comes. I think that's so fascinating. Rich. Rich mm. in imagination and in history. Well, Star Wars. We love Star Wars. I think we do. I love Star Wars. You love Star Wars. Well, guess what? J.J. Abrams is going to write and direct Star Wars Episode Nine. He wasn't, but now he is. J.J. Abrams is returning to Star Wars and will replace Colin Trevorrow as writer and director of Episode Nine, pushing the film's release date back seven months. Now, Disney announced Abrams' return yesterday. No, today, excuse me. It was today. And Abrams will co-write the film. As the director of The Force Awakens, Abrams rebooted Star Wars to largely glowing reviews from fans and made more than $2 billion dollars at the box office. Okay. So it will probably be a pretty good Star Wars Episode Nine, with Abrams behind the wheel. And our final story for tonight. This is odd, but interesting. Uh, this comes out of Weiner, Arkansas. Uh, it's an AP article. They tell us that seven tigers 
six lions and a leopard that were recently discovered by authorities in a warehouse in northeastern Arkansas will soon be flown to their home in Germany. Seven tigers, six lions, and a leopard discovered in a warehouse in Arkansas. Well, these are former Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey circus animals. They were found in good health on Saturday, this past Saturday, in that town in Arkansas. Now, last week, a tiger from the same group of animals, sadly, was killed after escaping near Atlanta, Georgia. Officers shot the six-year-old tiger when it attacked a dog at someone's house. Now, the big cats being held in Arkansas were flown to Germany today. And apparently, um, without notifying anyone, the caretakers of the animals, those that were in charge of them, used this warehouse to lay over these wild animals until they planned for the next step in their journey and didn't tell anybody. I guess they didn't bother to get any permits or to notify anybody that they had these these tigers, lions, and leopards in this warehouse, and authorities discovered them, and it was quite the hubbub. Nobody knew what was going on. But uh, during the uh, when they were moving the animals from place to place, that was when a tiger got out in Atlanta. But anyway, the, the animals are on their way back to Germany. And uh, let's wish them a good trip and wish them well. So that's it for tonight's news. What a time we live in, ARL. Absolutely. And I want everybody that's listening to concentrate on sending your love, support, light, energy, donations, whatever you can to help the people that have been affected by all of these um, natural disasters and uh, other other events in the, on the planet. But thanks so Absolutely. much for bringing us the Starseed News. Yes, it's not always an easy job, but I enjoy bringing it to you. <laughs> So, from my heart to yours, to each and every one of you, much love. You all have a beautiful week. Thanks so much, Anastasia. Bye-bye. And um, now I am going to bring Lavendar and our guest, Frank Jacob, online. Just let me get the mics open here for a second. Okay, spin, spin, spin. All right. Well, Lavendar and Frank, you're both online now. So, Frank, welcome so much. Uh, Welcome to the show. And, uh, Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Um, Lavender, are you ready to go? Here, I'm ready to go. Okay, well, take it away. Okay. Well, Frank, I, I'm really anxious to hear what you have to say. It got my attention when I read your synopsis uh, about Alternative 3, because when I was living in Cripple Creek, Colorado several years ago, I picked up that book and read it, and I said, oh, I sure hope that somebody makes a movie of this one day. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. So give us a synopsis of, of your um, plans to Mars. Uh, gee, well, uh, that, um, I guess I'll take it back a little bit to, to how I sort of got into that story to leading into making a film about Mars. Because when I first uh, found out about this story, it was many, many years earlier, and I was... Um, I met with a, there was a sort of a homeopathic farmer that I used to go to pick up supplies from, and he was a very intelligent man. And one night we were having one of these discussions about, you know, alternative food or healing or whatever it was. And then he suddenly pulls out this book and goes off the deep end talking about how this, this is a science fiction book that was written, written only as science fiction, but that it actually was uh, based on a true story. And that it was actually derived from a, um, a preceding uh, a television program that was aired in the UK 
1977, also called Alternative 3, but the show itself that it was on was called The Science Report, and it was one of those weekly or monthly shows uh, that uh, at the time in the 70s were coming out, just you know, reporting on the latest scientific and uh, developments and things that were going on around the world. So it was a fact-based magazine show. And as their um, final uh, episode, I guess the authors decided they were going to pull a fast one on, on their audience. And, uh, and I think, you know, the, the story goes that Christopher Miles and David Ambrose, who were the co-authors of the show, of the program, were going to try and prove that basically people will believe anything that they see on television. So according to that story and according to what their statements were, they created this fictitious story about Mars, that there was um, an analysis done by a think tank of people in the world that had decided mankind was doomed because essentially we were being plagued by uh, environmental uh, implosion, overpopulation, uh, warfare going on much like kind of what was being described a little bit earlier in the news on, on Starseed uh, Academy Radio, uh, seemed to be happening, you know, 40 years ago as well in another dimension. And I guess the thing is they didn't really think about the word, uh, you know, climate change or, or, or greenhouse gases or all this stuff so much back then. These were all new ideas. But uh, essentially they put uh, the, these people in the story put together a think tank that figured out, okay, well, the, there's three alternatives that they decided to, to explore. And alternative three got its name because it was the third, obviously, of those alternatives. Alternative one being that they were going to blast an atomic, uh, do an atomic detonations in the upper ionosphere to create holes to allow the greenhouse gases to escape which they uh, abandoned because they figured, well, we can make the holes, but we can't fix them, so that's not a good idea. So alternative, they, they went to alternative two, which was to, to build, uh, drill deep underground and create massive cities that would hold millions and be able to weather out the catastrophic conditions on the surface and then return one day after a long enough period of time to repopulate the earth which at the time that they uh, were doing the story, of course, they also felt was unrealistic or too expensive. And uh, so they opted for the third alternative, which was to utilize uh, a very a much more sophisticated level of technology than the public was aware of as far as space travel goes, which apparently they had access to, and uh, go to first the moon, set up bases there, and then bring people gradually from Earth to the moon and then onward to Mars to set up this survival colony. And the people that they were going to bring were, uh, were going to be engineers and scientists. And in the program, Alternative 3 in the UK, they, uh, were, they were following the lead like an investigative report to where some of these scientists seemed to be disappearing to. They called it the brain drain. So they would follow around and find abandoned cars at the airport and they... And then they had a sort of a whistleblower appear with this crazy story about having a tape that proved that we were on Mars, but they couldn't play the tape back because it needed a special decoding chip, which apparently another person had. And uh, in the end of the show, they finally get a hold of this chip and they drop it into the machine. They play back the tape and they see this recording of uh, a landing taking place uh, over the surface of Mars, fly, fly over first, and then and then a landing on the surface of Mars, 
And they did it so well that, you know, people by the tens of thousands called in to the television station panicking and freaking out that this was actually going on, that they didn't hear about this. And I guess because they'd been fooled, essentially, because if you're watching a program week after week and it's a science show and then suddenly you see this fictional mockumentary being put out and you don't realize that the end credits are listing actors, then you take it for real. And uh, so that was... That was kind of like the, the, the nutshell of the story, which then was later taken by the author, Leslie Watkins, himself a Fleet Street reporter, sort of an investigative reporter in, in, in England, who happened to have watched the show and had his publisher then propose he create a, a paperback version of the story and go much deeper, which he did. And that's what I got my hands on. And that story is just so mind-blowing. But when you think about it, you know, when I read it at the time, I thought, okay, cool story makes a lot you know it's, it makes you think and the way leslie wrote it certainly didn't sound like it was fiction it reads very much like a thriller of reality uh it's a real page turner anybody you know that, that is interested in that book you know you can you can go to our website we offer links to try to go and to get your hands on it both in english now and also in german it was released recently and it just uh is, is quite quite something to think about what what would happen you know that kind of thinking pattern 40 years ago uh, and then so when I decided to um, go in that direction as far as the documentary goes, I, was just, I wasn't sure I was going to go there at first. I was just looking for a good story to make a documentary out of. And then one night on the Internet, I'd heard suddenly out of the blue, I tuned into a, a radio interview with the great-granddaughter grand, of, uh, of Dwight D. Eisenhower, Laura Eisenhower, talking about having been recruited to go to this colony on Mars. And alongside her was a, uh, a lawyer from Washington State um, by the name of Andrew Bishago, who was talking about having been involved in uh, programs from childhood on, which, uh, which included technology that would create you know, teleportation, jump rooms, time, uh, time shifting, and things like that. It just sounded really crazy, but I was listening to this going, oh my God, is it really true? Is this story actually real? So I thought at that moment, okay, that for me, that's the story. I want to find out in today's context if this could actually be true. And I decided to sort of grab a backpack and a camera and hit the road and follow the story. Well, it's quite a story. And, and what do you think of Andrew? Did you, did you uh, uh, talk to Andrew? Yes, I, I did. He was, he was one of the first um, people that I reached out to. Um, I sort of made a, a decision, like, if I can find um, these people, uh, Laura and Andrew, and set up a communication, if they're willing to participate in, in being on a, in a film to talk about this, then that was for me kind of like the, the sign from the universe that, that this is a film that I should make. Um, you know, as you knew, as you said earlier, like when you read the book, you thought, wow, this would be a great film. And, and I always thought that, too. I was surprised that after all these decades that nobody had really grabbed that story because there was such a cult story behind it it was a it was sort of like a you know one of those urban mythologies of, of very very few uh stories have that kind of um level of of uh of cult behind them you know so it was really surprising that nobody had done this so for me that was that was that was the other thing it was just like this story has got to get out there and the other thing is if it's real then what are we looking at because we're hearing all this stuff about mars from the conventional uh orthodox science community saying that it's a dead planet it's freezing cold there's no way we could live there you know it just and then you hear these people talking about something which seems to contradict that and 
it really makes you think in lieu of since then, you know, I, I started the film alone. And then shortly after I started on the journey, uh, within days, I, I ran into uh, another sort of um, another person very interested in uh, in pursuing this uh these alternative realities that are going on around us, that would be Tanya Maidenfort. She became, uh, I convinced her to sort of jump on board and, and she ended up becoming the executive producer and producer and, and, uh, and introduced, uh, you know, me to the idea of bringing in many, many others as well as, you know, as, as Laura and Andrew, uh, because, you know, when you're listening to a story, it's like, let's just look at Andrew's story. I mean, it's just so far out there for most people to think that somebody could step into something like an elevator a jump room and then in 10 minutes be on Mars and uh, and that there are actually other people doing that and then get back on the elevator and come back to Earth, like going there to have lunch. That's such a crazy story for most people that uh, that it really required looking at it from, from many different angles because, um, you know, to support something just on the basis of somebody's testimony alone is probably not going to be enough for most people that are introduced to this idea for the first time. So when you were talking to Andrew, did he show you some of the photographs and things that he had where he had uh, been taking pictures of, I think he was back in the Civil War. Did he show you that picture? Yes, he did. Yeah, what we do you spent, think when uh, you saw it? I thought it was quite amazing. I mean, it, it, I just, um, I, at that point, I was just, for me, I, I was neither... Uh, skeptical nor nor um nor completely open to just believing it i just took it all in and i spent uh over two three days with with andrew and i i saw the pictures and i think and what convinced me in the end that that he was speaking the truth was that he was so consistent i mean when you spend that much time it's one thing to go to somebody and spend like 20 minutes doing a quick interview at a conference people have their story they have it rehearsed, you know, they've been doing this for a while, and it's sort of like almost second nature for them to, re- to recite it. But when you spend like three days in a car and you're driving around, you're doing B-roll and you're irritating this person and you're calling them out of their game and you're making them tell the story from a different perspective because you want to hear it more as a, you know, somebody like, wow, tell me about this being in the elevator. So you pull them out of their routine. I, I had to realize, I just had to say, I mean, the story was so consistent. The information was so, um, you know, resonated uh, as as his truth that that I I accepted it I, I took it in and I, I felt you know this this guy is telling definitely telling the truth um, and you know there are people I believe that you can you can convince yourself of something and maybe that's the case but you know and and at the very least since we started this process of documenting and and, and grabbing the footage and filming for for packing for Mars and and you know mind you it took us between 2010 to when we released it in November 2015, at the last day of November, it took five, basically five years to get the film done. So we, we talked to a lot of people and came across a lot of information. So, you know, it's a, it's a long process. And a lot of these people that are now emerged, that have now emerged, like Corey Good and Randy Kramer, they weren't around before. So, uh, and their stories now that they're bringing out are sounding even crazier. <laughs> so, but they all are coming out with things that are, that are backing or, you know, I mean, the thing is, these people are, these whistleblowers are coming out and they're talking about things that just are, uh, are just so mind-blowing uh, that you, but they're all sort of sharing elements. These stories are overlapping. So you have to say there must be something to it. At the very least, it's, a, it's an amazing cultural phenomenon to document 
this going on? I mean, this has never happened happened before, Lavender. Yes, I'm very I'm very aware of of everything that you're doing. It's been part of my discovery uh, to to track the things involving time travel. Time travel is is my last frontier to investigate. So I'm I'm very into everything that you're doing, and I'm so appreciate that you've taken these five years to make this film. I have not seen the film yet, but I but I want to. So tell us more about uh, the journey of making this film, and how did you find uh, Tony to uh, be your executive producer? How did that come about? <laughs> That's an interesting story, actually, because I had uh, just wrapped up filming in Vancouver in Canada, and I was scheduled to go to Vancouver, uh, Washington, uh, and uh, meet with Andrew. And when I met him, uh, we spent the first day doing an interview and then I had to figure out where I was going to stay that evening. I was really taking this thing by the seat of my pants here. I wasn't always sure if there was a hotel room waiting for me. Uh, I just, just would often get on a plane and arrive and figure I'd work it out later. Uh, and on this particular case, I was, I had convinced, um, or we had, Andrew had convinced a friend of his to uh, let us use their home for the interview. And the person and I began a conversation after the interview and, and they said, well, look, you know, um, you, can, uh, you can spend the night here, but, uh, but tomorrow, you know, you'll have to figure something else out because I have a guest coming and uh, there's not going to be any space. And, uh, and then the next day came along and we were out. And then, and then she sudden, suddenly said, well, you know, if you really have problems finding a place, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I don't want to see you sort of hanging out, not knowing where you're going to go. And if it's hard to find a hotel room or something at, at, on short notice, just sneak up and knock on the door, and I'll try to let you in. I might have another place for you for you to stay, and that's kind of how it happened. So then I, I ended up back at her place, and she let me in, uh, in into her house, and and then it turns out that uh, she was going, well, I have this guest here, and uh, you know, she, and um, you know, we're we're going to have a slice of pizza and watch a movie. You know, you're welcome to join us. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm busy doing my my daily routine, which is to grab all of my footage from my camera and move it onto my hard drives, you know, and double back up everything and then look at some of the footage to get some ideas. And so I started doing that. And then I ended up moving that into the living room where they were watching the film. And uh, as I was doing that, around the corner comes Tanya Maidenfort. And uh, we just, you know, looked at each other and we had this sort of strange recognition that you sometimes have with people that meet, you meet in your life. And then we started to, uh, I started to show some of the footage and she noticed that on my laptop, on the desktop, I had a few icons of posters of movies, in particular movies by uh, another filmmaker called Jose Escamilla, who was, had been doing films about the moon called Moon Rising, for example. And Moon Rising was one of those films that interested me and inspired me because uh, Jose Escamilla had analyzed the footage that was, uh, and pictures that were that were taking taken of the surface of the moon, and he found uh, uh, a large number of anomalous objects or smudged out parts of those pictures, and he made a film about it. And when I saw that, it was like anybody that would see a film like this, you're going, why would NASA smudge out certain parts of these pictures? And uh, so he made a film about it, and it turns out that the producer of that film was Tanya Maidenfort. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was all kind of prearranged from upstairs, don't you think? It was it was prearranged from upstairs, you could say. And, you know, so I was telling her, yeah, there's this guy, Jose Escamilla, and he's doing these films, and I didn't know anything about her. And I'm just like, oh, you know, and then I was, I was going on about how I wanted to get to 
to California and I was looking to try and meet some more people and oh what do you do by the way and then so it came comes out that she turns out that she knows really a lot of a lot of the people that I was actually trying to reach out to so you know she picked up the phone and she organized me having an interview with Jose Escamilla and he ended up being packing for Mars as well as well as some amazing uh, footage that he allowed us to use from his film did you ever find anyone that had been recruited for alternative 3 well, Alternative 3 directly, um, no, but because that was actually a fictional novel written. Now, the thing is, what you could say is that uh, the, the program that it's talking about, that there's this survival colony on the surface of Mars uh, and that there are bases on the moon, that part seems to be real. And that's what we found out in the course of making the film. It was less about following the actual story, the characters written in the story and whatnot, uh, as, as, and more sort of like, well, let's look at, at, this, at this situation. Let's see if there really could be a planet, I mean, um, uh, bases on the moon, moon and Mars. Let's see if there's any evidence of this effect. Who could we go talk, go talk to about that? And then, you know, we, you find these people. It's like, you know, you go on this, you open yourself up to this journey and uh, there's this line in the film, like the universe will open the doors for a fool wanting to know a secret. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty much, you know, pretty much the direction that it, that it took, you know, with the help of some some very, you know, guiding hands and some some uh, synchronistic meetings, such as the I mean, uh, Tanya's obviously was one of the more profound uh, synchronistic uh, meetings that took place that led to the film. Uh, but there were others. There were things that you know that came along that would really substantiate everything that we'd been working toward. Like for example, uh, after we'd finished the film, and we were invited to UFO Congress to their EBE Film Festival that they have every year, uh, to our film was taken was uh, was um, accepted into their film festival, and it's become quite an interesting and quite a uh, profound uh, and, and significant film festival for all films in this type of genre uh, that doesn't really fit into other film festivals out there in the world. And what, what we actually won the People's Choice Award there. And the night that we screened the film, we ran into um, uh, a former civilian astronaut that used to work in the Apollo program by the name of Ken Johnson. And Ken Johnston uh, was, actually had spent like 3,000 hours as a beta tester, you know, manning the lunar module, he was in charge of the lunar receiving lab and cataloging all of the lunar samples. And in the end of his engagement at, at NASA, he actually became, uh, he had access to the photographic archive. And that's when he himself discovered that not only were photos routinely tampered with, but even the films that were being taken of the surface of the moon were being tampered with. And he, uh, you know, he watched the film, and I was curious to see his response. And after the film, he comes walking toward us. I'm like, okay, here it comes. And, uh, you know, NASA astronaut usually will tell, you would expect them to say, no, no, this is, you know, <laughs> you guys are, you know, making this stuff all up. But, no, he comes up to us. And he goes, now, thank you for making this film because you've really connected a lot of the dots for me, too. And that was a really good thing because, <laughs> essentially, that was like, here we are with somebody who really is a civilian astronaut insider of the Apollo program himself, uh, you know, showing you. And he had a bunch of pictures with him that showed us some of the things that we'd shown in our film, but the versions that he had were the ones that were not tampered with. He had a few of the photographs with him that were not smudged, and you could clearly make out 
what looks to be like dome-like structures in a very in a very artificial-looking grid that were lit up on the backside of the moon, and that was just amazing to have that happen. Wow! So, did you also find any remote viewers? Is is that part of your film? Is is finding some of the remote viewers that we're talking about Mars? Well, the thing about the remote viewers that's interesting, we didn't actually, the, the one remote viewer that may have been interesting to talk to would be Ingo Swan. He's probably the most famous uh, of the remote viewers that the U.S. government was using. Um, and, you know, he published a book just before his death called Penetration. And that talks about his experience remote viewing structures and beings on the on the dark side of the moon. It's a fascinating story of how he was brought into this sort of ultra secret project he, you know, they, he had to go meet people go blindfolded into an area he wasn't told what he was going to be viewing and then and then when he was told you know what the coordinates were he connected the dots that he was actually going to the moon uh and and he what he encountered there really shocked him because he didn't expect to see what he what he what he saw because essentially we were told also that the moon is this gray dead dusty place where there's no signs of life uh there's nothing going on there and that's why the apollo program stopped in the at the in the middle of the 70s or the, you know whatever late you know end of the 70s essentially going to the moon so we were told you know you have to ask yourself i i did as a kid growing up why didn't i mean i i caught sort of the the uh, the early, you know the last few days of those apollo programs i was just old enough to kind of watch it on television and, and check it and then, you know, I, I never, I always wondered, like, why did they, you know, why did Apollo sort of stop going there? Like, it just, like, okay, I've been there, done that, right? Well, isn't this like an amazing place that we still have so much to explore? You know, those were questions that I had. But uh, it was interesting that, that the CIA and the U.S. government were definitely interested in remote, remote viewing the, um, not only the moon, but um, later, you know, in the, in the 80s, they began a program to actually remote view Mars as well. Uh, and, you know, we found out that through J.J. Hertog, who we have in the film, who's a paleoastroarchaeologist, um, and uh, some of his um, stories that he was relating to us about, um, you know, that he uh, uh, um, had talked to um, basically Russians who had, uh, who had had their own Phobos probes going to Mars that were essentially taken out that well, there's a famous one with the Phobos 2 in 1989 and we documented in the film that uh, essentially uh, seemed like there was some kind of an intelligent structure which got in the way uh, of this of this program but he was also telling us that essentially what took place in the Viking programs was much more detailed than we were ever told that they actually documented a lot more of the surface of the planet uh, of that time and a lot more detailed pictures uh we can't go into all of this in the film because we could make a film that's like eight hours long if we really wanted to cover all these subject areas well maybe you ought to you know do some more film and and do that you know extensions of that information everybody's wanting to know more about it so i would say do another film and include some of the things that you weren't able to include in the first one well, we're starting that now in a way, indirectly. Um, Tanya and I were asked in, in April to go to the Philippines and Butuan City and do a presentation uh, at, at, the, um, um, at the Alternative Archaeology Summit that was taking place down there. We, and they asked us to come there and do a, an archaeological presentation on the Mars and Moon. 
and which was of course very controversial because most of the archaeologists are you know following the the basic pattern that there is no other life in the universe so they concentrate on earth and here we were making a presentation about some of the stuff that we couldn't really all include in the film we just tapped like jj hertog touches the surface of this information and uh, so we're doing you know we're doing presentations now live in front of a public where we show slides and film excerpts and more of the detailed information with respect to certain specific aspects of the film which has been a very, very fascinating process because there's been so much more information that has really come to us in that process. You know, for example, even just the remote viewing thing, to touch on that again, the CIA was doing this in the 80s, and they were asking remote viewers to look at what happened on the surface of Mars about a million years ago. And, you know, why, you have to ask yourself, well, why would they ask uh, about what happened on the surface a million years ago? Well, it's interesting to note that since you know we released the film, uh, there's been a physicist by the name of John Brandenburg who emerged with a very amazing story. About, he's a plasma scientist, and he began looking at uh, the surface of Mars and the atmosphere of Mars, and he was able to determine through his science that there was uh, a clear nuclear detonation in two places on the surface, of, just above the surface of the planet, in the two areas that are the most well-known in terms of, you know, having anomalous uh, archaeological structures. And uh, from what we're seeing of the pictures coming back to us by the rovers, seemingly clear evidence of ancient civilizations, uh, remnants on the surface of the moon. And his information seems to indicate that this took place about a million years ago. So, um, and then we have, you know, the, the story that we cover also in, Packing from Mars is the story of Apollo 19 and 20, which is the you know the the supposedly uh, never happened uh, Apollo missions that took place that uh, started with Apollo 15, where they photographed an anomalous um, structure on the dark side of the moon, which looked like um, a cigar-shaped object lying in a crater. And uh, the story basically goes that they landed there and they found that structure, and it was a very large cigar-shaped ship. And they seem to date it also to be around a million years ago. And then if you look at the history of uh, the, the Vedas, for example, the mythological references, you can look at you know, the fact that we have like 369 words in the English language that reference the red planet. All of them talk about sort of heavy occurrences. Then you have like um, the mythical god Marduk, who is considered to be the ruler of Mars and Earth. And then you have all these other things like um, Tibetan legends of the destruction of the land of the seven cities. It goes on and on. It's just quite amazing that there's this really seemingly lost chapter that uh, ties together Earth and Mars going back about a million or maybe even more years. And the more we go into this, the more that's coming out. So I guess you're right. We probably could write, you know, maybe maybe it has to be a book. <laughs> it's hard Absolutely. to say. You know, they're films, well, look at all films the movies are so, that are like, happening now about Mars. I know. I mean, I, I had no idea when I when I started the film, and I kept telling Tanya, I said, like, I've, I've got to get, we've got to get this out now. It's going to be 2012. You know, 2012 is the big year. Everything's going to shift. And and then she's like, and then we just couldn't because in the meantime we'd done Solar Revolution. Uh, we'd done Klaus Donner Chronicles, and we were sidetracked by both of us working at Red Bull Media House to produce uh, about 40 shows called Ultimate Rush. So we were like busy, busy doing all these other things, and kept getting I kept getting pushed off the project. 
but you know we would have these long breaks and get back into it again do some more filming and and then I guess that's you know why it took five years but it gives you an interesting you know perspective to take that long to do something uh, but it really is um, I really you know really had no idea and neither of us really had any idea just how um, how uh, fortuitous or whatever you want to call it it would be uh, you know how just that it would just be we released the film within one week of The Martian. You know, we release our film and The Martian comes out. Uh, and, you know, it just was so kind of like, wow, this is great. You know, the, the Mars topic seems to be hitting big. And I, we really do feel that the film still has a lot of mileage because it's really, you know, when you make an independent film like this, you're not a Hollywood studio that goes out there with a blast and, and covers the planet in six months, you know, playing the film to millions and millions of people. You're coming out. You're you're six months as an independent filmmaker in this alternative genre uh, and of crazy subjects like Mars and things uh, is you know over a trajectory of maybe five years. So we're we're just starting. So can you tell us a little bit about what a chronovisor is? What is a chronovisor? The chronovisor. The chronovisor was uh, originally uh, developed by Father Pellegrino Ornetti. And uh, he was working under uh, financing of the Vatican in the 50s, back in the 50s already. Uh, now, he was somebody that was very interested in music and physics. And he felt that there's got to be a way that, because he knew as a physicist that whenever you make a sound, it penetrates into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is all around us. is not just air, but it's also magnetic and it resonates uh, in frequencies. And that all these things that we're saying, it actually, it actually goes into this, um, you know, reservoir. And his idea was that there had to be a way that this reservoir is, is, can be uh, tapped into. You know, like an old tape, tape you can find or like an old software program you drop into a computer and you can read it again. If you had the right instruments, you should be able to, like a, maybe, or maybe better describe like a radio tuner that you could actually tune in and and access uh, these remote events that took place in time. And he was right. And much to his surprise, not only was he able to tune into the audio component of these uh, events that have been recorded in space-time, or time-space, as Andrew Bishago likes to call it, because you wouldn't have space without time, he actually found that he was able to record a visual signal as well. So he got to the, he developed this, this is what he called the chronovisor. And the chronovisor essentially was able to tune in to these events and, and, and actually project a sort of a, a, a gritty 3D holographic black and white image of what had taken place. And he was looking at significant events that took place for that would be, you know, that he would be of interest, of interest, of course, like, you know, being a priest, he wanted to know, you know, did the crucifixion take place? Uh, or perhaps some, some key events in history, like Mussolini's speech, or, or, or Aristotle's, you know, lost, you know, uh, poem, you know, and things like that. And he started to tune these things in, and they, they videotaped them crudely at the time, but they, they actually documented this stuff, and they played it to... Uh, the, the, the Pope and some high brass in Italy and also some Americans. And the reaction was essentially, we have to shut this thing down. This is dangerous. So, uh, the, you know, we ran into 
uh, Ernst Sinkowski many years later, who's the person who talks about the Corona Visor and, and uh, packing for Mars, because he was one of the scientists that works in instrumental transcommunication and himself sort of interested in capturing the voices and messages from people that have moved on and, and made and transcended life, you know, and we call it death, but, you know, some people just call it transition. Uh, but, you know, so his field of study was to tap in and tune in to that. So he actually found out about um, Pellegrini Ronetti and actually went and met him. So we did Solar Revolution and he was, we found out, you know, because he was one of the scientists in that film that he had actually done or actually had contact with the Chronovisor we had to have him in the film. So, you know, he was telling a story about how the, the, the Pope and these people were freaking out. They were like, okay, this is, we've got to get this out, away. It's dangerous. You know, we can manipulate people with this. So the story, according to him, was that it disappeared. But he's not sure either if it disappeared. That's where Andrew's story picks up, because Andrew says that DARPA um, was very, very much interested in that technology and not only that but they've actually they'd also been dabbling in technology developed by another sort of lost genius of our of our history by the name of nikola tesla who's kind of like the zeitgeist of our times now nikola tesla had also figured out ways to kind of tap into quantum space and uh, and and manipulate time so the combination of those two things the chronovisor which was able to tap into events in time space and Nikola Tesla's uh, information led to the development of a device which is which enabled uh, children involved in this program to to actually first of all enter uh, this field this holographic field that was being projected they developed it to the point where they could actually these children would enter this field and they could actually interact in a sort of a holographic space with what was being projected. And that's where Andrew's story about going back as a kid to this time and being, you know, photographed with those shoes, you know, with those shoes that he, because he didn't have the shoes for it and everything, emerged from. And, uh, and then later, of course, this was taken much further even to the point where not only could they walk into this holographic projection, but then they could actually teleport there. Uh, and that technology then ultimately led to, you know, this started in the 70s, if you can believe that already, uh, and ultimately led to uh, technology being developed in the 80s, which would lead to this idea of the jump room, the actual room that, or the, this elevator-like device that you would go into to travel to remote locations. And I believe Andrew was like the first one that, you know, and um, uh, that would really, you know, talk about the details of all this. There's another one called Henry Deacon, which we have in the film. He was interviewed by... Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan for Project Camelot. He may also be among the first ones to come out and talk about this um, back in, that was uh, 2009, uh, that you know, he revealed uh, his participation live in front of an audience in Barcelona at the ExoPolitics conference that was taking place there to verify and substantiate something that Robert Dean was talking about having been on Mars as well. So apparently this, is, this sort of technology had emerged so starting in the late 60s, early 70s, and developed quite uh, intensely for the next 20 years, uh, leading to these to these jump rooms and the chronovisor uh, to its to its sort of more sophisticated development. So, were you able to interview Al Bielik before he left the planet? No, I was not. Okay, I was just curious. I had spent some time with Al when we were in Atlanta, and I 
and I, I really, uh, really admired him standing up for himself and talking about his experiences. So it's you know it's been very very difficult for a lot of us that have had these high strangeness activities all of our life to be able to to now come out and speak about it and not be so um, afraid of criticism or people pointing nasty fingers at us <laughs> because we're nuts. Yes. Um, yes. And, and we're finding you know, that there's more and more of us now that are having these experiences, and then when we find each other, it seems to be a, a kind of a soul family that, that agreed to come to the planet to expose th- these kinds of things. Is this something that you've been finding? Yeah, I believe it is, too. You know, I just think that uh, uh, we're, we're experiencing this sort of a, a, a floodgate of of information that is just it's no longer able to be kept from from us on mass i mean I, we talk about it and in, in the, the way we described it in solar revolution was when we went and talked to michael persinger who was a neuroscientist in sudbury ontario he came the closest to to what we were um, really able to identify as the you know the sakashic records that they talk about in the hindu scriptures and the indian um, you know, belief system that there's this documented record of everything that's ever happened. Uh, he talks about it, of course, which of course again substantiates everything with the chronovisor. Uh, Persinger talks about it in terms of how there's this magnet, the magnetic field of the Earth, this mantle around us, essentially is this giant cloud computer which collects and everything that's ever been thought and said. So um, it's and that and the fact that there are people. And more and more of them, including, you know, some really remarkable children coming into the world now, too, that are essentially possess the, um, you know, the senses or have are, are easily able to tap in the senses that all of us really have access to. But some are, you know, more uh, apt to have them and to feel them and be sensitive, you know, the so-called psychics or whatever you want to call them, um, they or the experiencers. Those, those ones are bringing through this information. They may not necessarily always know where it's coming from, and it's interesting because many of them don't really have any documented evidence for it. They're just coming out with this information. It's just coming, flooding through them, and they're putting it out, uh, and it's consistent. And it's, I believe and we believe that you know that the, the best explanation for it is that it really is in this resonance field. So if there is this breakaway civilization, and we haven't really talked about that much yet tonight, but this idea that there's a civilization and possess and possession of technology far superior to, to that that we're told we actually have that are utilizing science um, that we aren't we haven't been introduced to yet uh, that they might be able to hide these things from us in the three-dimensional world you know we don't see it in the, in the televisions we don't see it in the books or the educational system but one place they can't hide it from any anywhere is in this sort of resonance field that's on the planet and and there are those people who are channeling that information from the resonance field directly and it's just coming it's just coming through uh and you know what it, i found consistent. about 2012 wasn't so much about the mayan calendar what i discovered um many months later after it happened was that the star siege and the people that were here on the planet to bring the new blueprints and to bring the new kids to the planet the new genetic engineered kids that have been you know uh either abducted or taken aboard ships. There's a whole plan to to rise up a new generation of of uh of advanced beings on the planet and we call them star star seeds. 
And that's yes, what absolutely. I really started seeing happening because a lot of people started finding us on our website. I started asking people, so how did you find us? And they'd say things like, I was asleep and I heard the word starseed. I got up and I Googled you. And I can't tell you how many people say that. So what tells me is that upstairs there's a beam of energy happening to people in their sleeps and, and there's different words that are happening like starseed. Starseed is just one of the examples. But there's other things that are happening too, uh, like, um, for instance, he- healing modalities and different um, formulas for for um, essential oils. All kinds of things are happening in people's sleep, and I think they're being beamed from higher dimensions because in 2012, I think what you're talking about, the resonance around the planet, it shifted and it changed in such a way that we can go forward and not be um, going through persecution like we might have done, you know, centuries ago. Yes, yes, and that would be supported also by, see, in, in, in Solar Revolution we talk about how the the position of the Earth relative to the arms of the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has also changed. And the the Mayas talked about um, a ray of uh, of truth or a ray of knowledge coming from the center of the galaxy called the Hunab Ku, and this uh, was supposed to be coming, uh, you know, around. That they never really pin. The thing is, they never really pinpointed the state of December twenty first, twenty twelve. That's sort of a man made, a modern man's invention. With you know the the idea of being able to pinpoint it to a nice cool number like December twenty first, twenty twelve. The Mayas always talked about a window of time. And that certain events would be ushered uh, in that would gradually create this uh, knowledge, that would create this, that, that would be, I guess, symbolize this ray of stuff. And now, um, what we talk about uh, in, in Solar Revolution is this: that there's really real hard evidence from astrophysicists that there actually is something very unique that's taking place right now, and that started happening around 2012, and has increasingly uh, been hitting us ever since. And that is that we've been sort of getting this uh, more, much more plasma radiation, uh, many more uh, different forms of, uh, of, of X-rays and rays are coming through us and particles are coming through us right now because, for one, uh, of the position that we've arrived at um, in the galaxy where we are, and uh, for another, um, there's been um, a dete- they've detected a black hole at the center of our galaxy called uh, in an area called Sagittarius A. And this black hole basically is um, is gobbling up or is, is digesting or swallowing a massive uh, plasma planet. Uh, and in doing so, as this planet is being absorbed into the black hole, of course, you know, what we're learning now about black holes is not only do, the, do they pull things in, but it's just like with a sink. You know, when you have water running down in the sink, you see this world... Uh, this vortex happened, but the only way the water is going into the sink is if the air is coming out of the middle of that hole. And instead of, you know, if you can think of it that way, instead of air coming out of the black hole, these particles are coming out of this black hole, shooting at us in an un- unprecedented amounts. And they are all hitting us right now. We're being, like, you know, run through with this stuff. And simultaneously to that, the magnetic field of the Earth is weakening. We've also been documenting the weakening of the magnetic field around the planet, um, and it's been shifting its position gradually as well. So we have these, and then we have the heating of the planet happening as a result of these particles as well. Not only Earth, but also all the other planets in our solar system are heating up from from this, uh, you know, 
high vibrational energy coming out of the center of the galaxy. So, you know, the idea of, of creating this sort of carbon-based model that mankind is heating the planet is really, it's like, it's really super simplified, uh, uh, I mean, incomplete explanation. It really has nothing to do with reality. But it's a great way, of course, for the media to, to keep us in fear mentality. But really what's happening is that we're being really we're, give, we're being given the tools. Those of us who are willing to or are able to utilize this higher vibration are having incredible visions. I mean, I know lots of people, and I'm sure you know lots of people as well that this is happening to, that are just feeling much more of this influx of energy and are feeling the vibrations increase. And you know, along with that, of course, comes sort of a lot of chaos. There's people that are not able to. Um, to feel those energies in such a harmon- harmonized way that are that are not resonating, that are having you know problems. They're they're, they're running into problems. Things are kind of falling apart. Systems are falling apart. Uh, they, that don't really resonate with the new energy any longer. And that's what we're seeing ourselves going through right now. It's really amazing to watch. Uh, you know, we're also you know being you know it's like. This is a pretty deep topic because there's a lot of things going on that we, some people could say beware that there's there's this whole new age you know thing that has you know elements of Satanism in it that you know that we're being guided and misguided and and being you know uh, fooled into believing what's going on. Uh, yeah, maybe that's going on, but I think over and all, over uh, and above everything, I think we're seeing this shift of consciousness happening, and it's inevitable. I believe, and one of the reasons that that you know I, I decided that I wanted to work with Dieter Burrs, the, the the writer of Solar Revolution, was because he was the first scientist, a German scientist, who actually figured out a way to describe. Uh, what's going on in terms of evolution, in terms of human evolution, and in a way that I really felt comfortable with in terms of it being an involuntary evolution, not something we had to sit there and meditate every day for, that we had to practice for years and years to try and get the discipline. All those things really help, but this kind of um, evolution, this shift in consciousness that we're experiencing, this is coming from uh, the entire universe is supporting this, not just our little planet. About that absolutely well I'm looking at the time and would you be willing to talk to some people that maybe want to call and ask you some questions tonight certainly willing to do that sure okay so Ariel are you there yes ma'am yes okay yes, ma'am. Well, Frank I really have enjoyed uh, speaking with you and I I uh, anytime that you want to come back on our show please let us know if you have a new project we do want to support your film and anything that you're doing in the future. So thank you so much thank for being our guest. Back to you, Ariel. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be on with you. Well, I have just been fascinated, and um, I um, I did watch the, the movie, and um, I was completely enthralled. I mean, I thought, well, I'll watch a little bit, and then I'll do something else, and then I'll come back and watch some more because I was trying, but I couldn't, I couldn't walk away. It, it was just, yeah. I mean, it, it was riveting and compelling. I mean, the the visual um, evidence, the and the thing about you know smudging pictures and that uh, situation where well, if you smudge it, then people can say, oh, it's tampering, and then they can debunk it and they can say yes or no or whatever pleases them. You know, I thought, well, that makes sense. But what yes. really, what what really um, was got my attention was the gentleman who um, I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember his name, but uh, he had kind of 
white longish hair and was a, an ex um Jerry uh, Wills? Oh, you talk no, you're talking about Duncan O'Finian probably. Duncan O'Finian. The ex yes, MK yes, Ultra, yes. the ex MK Ultra participant, the super soldier. Yes. Yes. I mean, wow. I've heard about that, yeah. but I've, I'm, it was always just like, is that a myth? Or, but here's somebody to, to corroborate it, um, you know, yes. and you know, taking taking the the ship and 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 um, hitting some problems and crashing, and you know, he barely made it back. But um, yes. that was very very compelling, you know, and and the 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 woman in that part that was the remote viewer that was called yes. in to. You know, to help him. I mean, yes. Very, very. I mean, it resonated as truth with me. Well, I'm uh, glad to hear so, that. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, we we when we did the film, we really. Um, I wanted to. You know, my original idea was to make a film that was very cinematic. That was something which would sort of transcend a traditional documentary approach, where you just have people talking. And you show a couple of pictures and you have more people talking and without much music and without any kind of very creative elements to it. I wanted to really incorporate a lot of these different aspects of my own evolution as an artist from being a musician originally to then eventually moving on into film and visuals and live material. And and, uh, and I knew the potential was there to really create like a, a journey-like cinematic thing. And when I met Tanya, she, she totally resonated with that as well so that was our goal from that moment forward to create this sort of a cinematic world and journey that you go into and one of the techniques that that uh, we wanted to use was to put people very very close to the to the testimony of those whistleblowers and experiencers by getting the camera very close because you know there's something when you're sitting right across from somebody and you're allowing them to kind of release that information to you and trust you know and to they have to there has to be this bond between you and them that they know that they're sitting across from someone who's not going to ridicule them who really wants to is interested in their story uh, because they really are interested in in telling um, or filling in the blanks of uh, of history and and leaving a record of truth um, and that their story will become kind of this um, time capsule so and and whether it's like and and just when you're close to somebody like that in this closed environment, closed room, you really have that uh, that the ability to resonate with that person and feel if the information resonates with you as truth or you know because like uh, otherwise you're just you know hearing someone talk is one thing you can hear it in the voice usually but but when you're hearing it in the voice and you're seeing it in a very up close uh, photography i think it really adds that element of of impact oh, that sure. you're just describing you that close eye contact and um and yes you i mean it was very cinematic there were some really you know just gorgeous uh, scenes um both natural and you know computer generated images and it's just very very well done um, well, the element of nature was very necessary, too. You know, we needed to have, uh, I just really felt we had to feel the elements. We had to feel the water. We had to feel the desert. We had to feel the air. You know, we had to have those elements because here we are talking about outer space and crazy uh, off-planet ideas, yet we're on this amazing planet. And that had to be one of the characters in the film, you know. Right, right. Yeah, and the lone person on the beach. And the vastness of the ocean. I mean, that to me, that was really symbolic. And yes. 
I'm a, a professional musician, had have been, and I really, really um, enjoyed the music tracks um, and all the the different instruments that you brought out. <laughs> it's like I haven't seen that you know that mouth harp thing in a long time, and I had no idea that Richard Dolan was a blues harp player. Nobody. <laughs> That's something that. I mean, that was a surprise. Yeah. We know Richard. He's been on our show several times, and we've um, done conferences together. So, um, and, hey, you didn't say anything about your musical talent, but that was very enjoyable. And uh, we do have a caller that is um, out of the queue now, ready to speak with you. Her name is Lynn. So let me open your mic just a second here. Okay, Lynn, you are on the air with Frank Jacob. Thank you. Well, this was so much fun. I am just so delighted that you brought this out. And my question is, where can I, is is the movie on Netflix? The movie is, uh, the best place to get the movie is to go to the official website. um, Okay. Which is which is uh, www.packingformarsmovie.com. And there you have access to, uh, in English, uh, you can get the DVD in both English and now in German. We released it and we had it synchronized and released because of the popular uh, response we had over here in Europe, in Germany. So you can get it on, there's an English site and a German version of the site. So you can can see it, you can get a DVD. And you can also, if you like streaming, uh, there's a a VOD, platform that we've partnered with called Real House, so you can also access it uh, via um, the stream, but that would be not Netflix, it would actually be Real House. But it's all okay. available through the website. Okay. Uh, I will and do also, that. Well, you know, I... we're also showing people, like, we have a tour schedule, so, you know, if we, if we tour around and we show the film, the best place to find out, you know, where we're going to be is on the tour page, and of course, there's a press page if you if you want to check out more research or go into some of the interviews, we've done, I think, close to 100 interviews in the last uh, year and a half or so uh, with respect to the film. So there's a lot of stuff there to mine into if, if you're interested. Okay. Well, no, I'm I'm totally interested, and I can't wait to get on it. So thank you very much, and thank you, Lavendar and Ariel, for bringing this. What a treat. What a treat. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Well, thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for calling Good to hear your voice again. You bet. Yes, you take thanks. care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, so let's uh, repeat that, um, the website, packingformarsmovie.com. And it is also available at Real House, and that's R-E-E-L-H-O-U-S-E. Is that .org, did I see? No, um, is it realhouse.com? I think it might be .org. I'm actually so used to just having a link to click on that I don't have to look at that. <laughs> yeah, I can hang on. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go look at it later. But yeah, I think it's <clears throat> if you just type "real house" in Google, it'll it'll take you to the right place. Whether it's .org exactly. or .com or .net, I guess um, you don't have to know exactly. It's anymore. .org. It is .org. It is .org. Um, okay, yeah. yeah, you know, and we did, we should mention, you know, that, uh, you know, Tanya and I decided for your, your audience that we'd like to offer a 25% discount on the rental of the film on Real House for all of your Starseed listeners. And, and all you have to do is go to rent the film and uh, there's a coupon field 
where you can put in a code, and what you put in there is uh, star seed 2017, and um, you'll get you'll get that 25% discount. Excellent. And is it starseed um, all uppercase or lowercase, or doesn't it matter? Yeah, I guess all uppercase. Probably doesn't matter, but just to be sure, put it all uppercase and all one word and then 2017 all all together. No spaces. Exactly. So that's that's a very very generous offer. So everybody, please, um, you know, check out this movie. There is information, and in, I mean, there's some stuff. There's certain little portions where, like, yeah, I heard him say that in someplace else. But there's stuff there that I have never seen, and we've had a lot of um, guests on our show that, that were um, obsessed with Mars and, and de- debunking, decoding, um, right? Debunking the debunking is basically what they were doing. So well, um, you know, the thing but, is, one of the points that we mention in the film we, uh, that we really go into is um, how the um, falsification of information put into the world is a technique that is being used uh, often uh, by those that would like us to stay, you know, out of touch with reality. Uh, and they contaminate truthful stories with bits of information which are falsified. And the, the story that we, you know, of course, the whole smudging of the images on the moon is part of that. But another part of that that we delved into in the film, like I mentioned earlier, is this Apollo 1920 chapter that uh, talks about uh, what was found on the dark side of the moon. There was actually a being that was found on the dark side of the moon. And uh, this being has has actually since then, since they found it, been brought to Earth and has been in kind of a state of homeostasis. And there are people that are channeling this being now, and there's even books emerging um, of the information that this being is is releasing to us. But uh, what's interesting is really the use of falsification of information, contamination of information. So it's really important when you're a researcher and you're somebody who's really been looking in earnest to get to the bottom of the story is that you look at everything. You don't just discount something when parts of it might be untrue. Because what, what we're finding as, the, as time goes on in our research is we're finding, A, a lot of substantiating evidence that we touched on in the film, which we completed uh, two years ago, um, you know, puts out, uh, we're finding more information that fits, you know, everything that we're talking about that's going to confirm what we're talking about. And we're also finding uh, a strong movement of people coming out with information that is uh, false, but it touches, it has aspects of what we shall we talk about in it. Uh, but because it has fake parts in it, people that are, um, you know, skeptical at first, uh, at first glance would be throwing out valuable information uh, rather than looking at everything, putting it all together, and then seeing, okay, this part here overlaps with that part over there. So a good researcher will look at everything and not making this a decision about whether it's uh, it's false or real or anything until really all the cards are on the table, or, or many, let's just say many more cards. It's probably not possible to get all the cards on the table of the hidden history of our planet. But uh, you look at channeled information, you look at evidence, you look at what whistleblowers are talking about, you look at what experiences are talking about, you look about, you look at what um, the, the emerging um, hybrid uh, race of humans are, are bringing out and the information they're putting out is, is all consistent in a lot of ways with uh, this picture of reality, which, uh, which is leading us to kind of a new, a new chapter, hopefully, let's say, a new chapter, a positive chapter 
in our evolution, our, in our inheritance, that, you know, the, the fact that we as humans um, are entitled to make another jump in evolution. You know, it's been quite a while since we've had um, a really major evolutionary leap in our consciousness. You know, you can look back hundreds of years at the writings of, you know, Mozart even, uh, that, you know, there isn't much, you know, the, the dialogues going on between him and the Masonic information he was tapping into isn't that much different than what we're having now, you know, two, three hundred years later. So we're, you know, we've been kind of stagnating at a certain point uh, of information exchange. And now we're making this leap and we're leaping to another level. And that, I guess, is a big threat in certain ways to the status quo. And perhaps those people who have positioned themselves over the last Two three hundred years to to be in the positions of power and control over us since then, who don't want to relinquish that power and control and are you know in this day and age because they're, they've gotten accustomed and used to this privilege and, uh, and, and and society that they've gained by having information and technology at their disposal that the rest of us actually should but never get to. Right, and that and the point that you made in the movie that all of the efforts that are made to keep everybody dumbed down, you know, from the chemicals in food, from the uh, the chemtrails to uh, pharmaceuticals, there's there's an, an unending list of things. Yes. That, and people, and they put their hands up for it. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have that. How much do you want? And they pay. <laughs> and they pay to yes. get the, the poison or the, or the um, whatever. And it's just... It just uh, kind of makes kind of makes my blood boil yes. if I let it like think about it for too long. Yeah, I know it's easy um, to have that happen. You know, you start reading yeah. into the real history, uh, and it just it's so it can be so it can make you so angry that you realize that you know um, they've absconded with the truth and they've replaced it with their sanitized version, uh, and it's not uh, and look where it's leading us. And we all feel it. And we all feel it's oh, it's got to be over at some point. We, you know, we, we're entitled to knowing who we really are. And, uh, you know, in the film, of course, in the, in the first, in that first seven to ten minutes, you know, we, we kind of lay it all out. It's funny because, you know, when they brought the X-Files, the, the new season of X-Files out after we released the film, it's funny. There's that, I think in the first episode, there's that one part where there's this download when the guy sort of lays it all on the table and it's almost word for word what we're talking about in the first seven minutes of Packing for Mars. It was quite interesting. You know, I, I don't want to claim that, you know, they took it from us or anything. I'm just saying it's one of those examples of how the information is emerging and there's just no way to stop it. It's just that the, the tap is being opened, the floodgates are breaking, and the stuff is coming out. But it's up to us to steer it in a positive direction. It's up to us to stay focused and to not get burdened down by negativity. And, you know, like we were saying, you can get so... You can get so angry about it. I think it's it's important to maintain a cool head uh, and just, you know, we also maybe have to be willing to uh, forgive those people that have had those control strings over us. And we've, you know, we've allowed them, you know, because we've given, you know, you, nobody can really have power over you as an individual unless you give it to them. And for maybe a large part of your life, when you grow up in the system, you're taught to just assimilate into the system. So you're taught actually to give your power to the system. But those of us who are waking up are realizing, no, we don't have to give our power to the system. We can choose, you know, whom to give our power to. And that includes whom, you know, we whose story we buy into, whether we accept a a fear-based reality or whether we accept that, 
hey, it's just a stumbling block. And maybe part of that is for us to look at those people who have held those strings of control and say, okay, guys, we see it, we get it. But, sorry, it just doesn't work anymore. It's just like when Neo stands in the Matrix and the bullets are flying at him and he puts his hand up and he says, sorry, guys, these bullets just aren't going to hit. They're not going to touch me anymore because I see through it. And you have to forgive those people because otherwise there's going to be a war. You know, they're going to hold on to their control. They're going to fight to the bitter end, uh, I believe, or we believe anyway, unless they're willing to sort of, unless they have a, a paradigm consciousness uh, that's allowing them to say, okay, look, we had this, state of consciousness that we were in, we participated in it, you guys participated in it, um, everyone was playing their roles, but maybe it was all just there to push us to the next level, to irritate us, to, to you know, kind of look at, um, to provoke our immune system, maybe our psychic immune system to become stronger, to break out of our shell and to rise to the occasion. So all of the parts have their purpose, all of their parts have their reason, and it's up to us to be positive about it be able to forgive, give our hearts, our love to that um, vibration, because, you know, love is that vibration which actually will destroy any other negative vibrations in the universe. That's so true. That is so true. And with the astrological piece um, and the planetary um, um, energies that are forming uh, combinations, it's well, I'll speak in musical terms. You know, instead of dissonance, there's there's resonance, there is harmony in these um, planetary positions, and the goal for the future. So, you know, Pluto, the evolutionary planet, has gone through these these generations, and um, you know, the the Pluto and Virgo generation, very concerned about health, and now those people are old enough to be in, you know, the CEOs of many food companies. So look at the um, organic natural food explosion. It used to be you couldn't get it anywhere, and if you did, it was, you know, kind of not appealing. But now it's just mainstream. That's the Pluto and Virgo generation. And then Pluto and Libra is more about, you know, the fairness and cooperation and working with each other. And then you get the, the Pluto and Scorpio, which comes in and just transmutes things. And then, the you know, Pluto in... in, in as it goes through these cycles. So mm -hmm. there's no person, there's no government that is more powerful than a whole planet. And when you've got several planets lining up and configuring, and this is all, um, this is all math, and the, the, the frequencies that are hitting the planet are uplifting um, those who are of the light, and it is squashing the ones who are not, even though they don't really know it yet. They're hanging on tooth and nail, like you said, to their positions of power. But the you know evolution of time and the planetary energies are going to take them out. You know, and if we want to hurry exactly. it up a little bit, <laughs> yeah, if we want to hurry it up. We can all band together and 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 help to accelerate that. But it's it's already written as far as uh, yeah, the changes. I, I totally think that's a great way to put it. I agree with you 100. percent I think that we all are like. We're feeling stuff, you know, even I, I'm finding even people just that normally aren't into any kind of consciousness stuff telling me, you know, things like, hey, I, I feel like we're going to be told about UFOs or something. And then I just kind of feel like there's going to be some kind of a disclosure and they're not even into disclosure. 
and they're just they're, they're just feeling it. And I think that you know I would look at, for example, we, you know, I was in in Las Vegas last month and at the MUFON symposium for the Secret Space Program, and uh, Jan Harzan introduced for the first time ever the idea of bringing someone like Corey Good and Andrew Bishago and Bill Tompkins uh, to the table to to tell their story about a secret space program. And it was very controversial because the people that are traditionally in the MUFON organization want to always work, you know, work with things they can get their hands on, you know, real, you know, bona fide evidence that they can consider, they can touch and, you know, and move around and exchange. And then here suddenly are these people that are coming out with these stories that they can't really substantiate because they can't walk away from these programs with uh, briefcases full of documents and uh, and release them to the world, you know, without being endangered themselves or without even, I mean, there's, there's all these factors involved. There's all these nuances. Uh, so a lot of people tend to discount their, their uh, evidence as being, uh, you know, something to consider. But I look at it as this, the reason that, you know, and it was in, and one more thing I should note is that uh, I was told that the MUFON gatherings tend to be somewhere between two to 400 people when they have these gatherings, well, this one was the biggest of all time. It was o- over a thousand people came there and were were interested in this information because of this secret space program information coming out. And you know, even if it is unsubstantiated, somehow people are feeling it. They're feeling that it's it's somehow true for them. And not everybody can be, you know, I don't think everybody can be led down, you know, the garden path. I think that there's a lot of people that really do feel there's something to this information and we need to look at it because maybe we're feeling something is just around the corner and uh, you know, alternative three and uh, the foundation of packing for Mars was this idea that there needed to be uh, some steps taken to ensure for the survival of the human genome. And their version of course was to get off planet and go to Mars and wait it out. Uh, but maybe this is just a symbol for the fact, you know, we have that story going into the Bible about Noah. You know, the flood came, and only some people survived. You know, this story seems to be recurring, and I think it's happening again. And there's Atlantis, you know. There's, 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 I think we have it in our genetic memory to know that there's something major that takes place in a cycle, and the cycle maybe is approaching us again, and we're feeling it, and we're feeling it in ourselves. We don't know necessarily how to explain it, but we're willing to throw away the idea that we need to have uh, all the pictures and all the film footage and all the evidence in our hand before we're willing to say this is real and uh, and just take it all in. I'm thinking of um, one of Lavendar's famous quotes, truth knows its own source. When people hear truth, they don't have to be handed proof. If it's truth from their own source, then they'll know it. And they won't ask for proof because they'll already know. And these are the, these are yeah. people that are you know awake, alive, uh, functioning well. Um, I mean, our audience. Uh, actually, we're we're coming up just about. I haven't announced it yet, but since we're on that topic, almost a million people have heard our program. So, wow, that's a really that's a really good start. In that is you know, helping helping people to. Um, look outside the box, as you said in the movie. You know, the, the yes. establishment, the elite wants you to stay in the box, and don't you dare try to peek out. <laughs> you stay in there and just yes. do your job and pay your money. So, um, uh, 
that that was just I loved it. I loved it. So we are kind of um, coming to a close here. So is there any other um, topic, subject, or thing that you would like to say before we wrap up? Well, I don't know. I don't want to start another long dialogue. I'm sure we can go into many areas. We hardly even put yeah, I have the surface feeling. here. But uh, I think we're in a good place. I think it's important for, I mean, you know, maybe we can get a million people to watch Packing for Mars. <laughs> so everyone spread the word. You know, get us, uh, get them out to on the website, and get them to watch this film. It was, it was, you know, it was quite, uh, it was quite prophetic in a way because here, here I was sitting in Mufon at the symposium in Las Vegas, and the final scene of the film. Well, actually, I shouldn't give it away, but uh, you know, we come full circle, and uh, and there we are in Las Vegas. So it, it's very, uh, it's very interesting, and I think we're living in very fascinating times. And I think a film like this is a. It's sort of a great stepping stone to get people talking about this material. It isn't quite as as, as, as far out there and crazy as the uh, interplanetary um, corporate conglomerate uh, being described by uh, Corey Good and Bill Tompkins. Uh, but you know, every part of the film definitely has uh, a piece in it which connects to all all of that other stuff out there. And maybe Mars is, is an important part of that because Mars we really do have this shared history with that planet that is so fascinating that goes back thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, maybe even longer, maybe even millions of years. And, you know, maybe it turns out that we are the Martians. Uh, but, you know, I think it's a, at the very least, it's a very enjoyable picture to watch and it'll certainly uh, be something to get discussions going. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, some of the stuff it's like, yeah, I knew that. And it's like, whoa, I didn't know that. So there, I mean, there's something in there that you don't know. I'm talking to the audience, so go in and uh, you know, rent the movie, buy the movie, uh, stream the movie, whatever, but just see it, packingformarsmovie.com. So with that, you know, I, I think that you're probably going to have to come back because I know we just scratched the surface of, uh, of everything sure. that you've been involved in. So um, we would look forward to that in the future. And I would thank you so much for spending your time uh, with us and our audience, and also for the five years uh, on this project alone. Thank you for your dedication. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real great pleasure to talk with you. Well, and the same goes for us as well. So with that, everyone, I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week. On behalf of everyone here uh, at Starseed Radio Academy, we wish you a great week. Remember to send your support, your light, your energy to the areas in the world that Anastasia described as having some really hard problems right now. And in your own lives, count your blessings every day. Be aware of how lucky we are. With that, have a great week, everyone. Good night. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.